All right, thank you, Albert, so much uh, for reading that for us. I know that's a very popular biblical story. Uh, even if you don't go to church or haven't been to church very much, it is highly likely that the Elijah Elisha story has been something that has stood out to you. Uh, so we're in a series between now and Easter, and it actually might go a little bit farther than Easter, um, called Devoted. And so we're using this, what I believe is a very powerful English word, to really compare on the, um, the, the I guess, the responsibility or the job description or the amount of effort or the, the, the stresses, stresses and the tensions that we're going to have to go through if we are going to fully understand what the early writers that spent time with Jesus really were trying to say that the, this is what the church is. And we're not going to just like randomly step into being the church. It's going to take a ton of effort. When I was in college, um, it was actually my sophomore year of college, I knew that I had already knew, I, I knew at that time that I wanted to go into full-time ministry. My training was starting working with adolescents, like the 13 and over um, crowd. And, uh, the, and it wasn't until well into my uh, er, like early 30s that the Lord really started to put a desire in me to talk to adults. Um, and so when I was in college, my, one of my professors, uh, he was the head of our department. His name was Dr. Adams. He had spoken to a group of about 500 of us in this special meeting that we had on campus. And after the meeting was over, I asked him um, if I could take him to lunch. And he's like, I don't have lunch plans. Now, I just want to remind you, I was a sophomore in college. I didn't have a job that really sustained me. I was paying my way through school by working from midnight till 6 a.m., and then I would go eat and then go to my classes, go back in the afternoon, take a nap, then do my homework, and then go back to work at midnight. And that was my flow for three years during my university time. And so he said, yeah, I'll take you. To, you can take me to lunch. And I said, great. Do you want to go to Mertz? And he's like, I love Mertz. Well, Mertz was a hot dog store. Um, a little little building that you could go to and had like 10 chairs in it. But he loved hot dogs. I loved hot dogs. And we went and sat. And I remember him speaking on this passage of scripture from 2 Kings chapter 2. And my request of him was, if I keep listening to you, I want to have double the impact on the church that you've had. Um, and here is a man that is now... Um, well into his 70s. Uh, he's still teaching college students at the same university where I went to school, and he is still influencing pastors all around the world. And I, and I remember vividly, and every time I go back to visit my mom, because he doesn't live very far from where my mom lives, I always remember the conversation that I had with him. And every time we cross paths, he always remembers the conversation I had with him. And now this has been some almost 30 years later, and I am still looking for examples of people that I can say I want to do more than I'm currently doing. And when I see you 15, 25, 30 years older than me, I would want to do more than I've seen you accomplish in your lifetime. There's a sense of tenacity in that. I don't think it's arrogant. I think it's out of the overflow of the heart. But I, and I don't know about you, 
um, who you've set your eyes on in your career path and in people that you look up to to say, I, I want to have, I want to do more in medicine or I want to do more in science or do more in math or do more in technology than this particular person has. So we all have a way of setting our eyes on people and looking to achieve. Like the Olympics are that. Like you can't watch the Olympics right now without them saying, well, here's the Olympic record and here's the world record. Now here's a dozen people trying to break it. Right, because everybody and nothing was more powerful for me this week than watching Sean White go down the the uh, half pipe one last time, and all of the young people waiting at the bottom just to congratulate him because they would have never done what they had just done on the slope if Sean White had never put snowboarding half pipe on the map. Like they are now doing things that he couldn't even do because they are saying we want a double portion of your talent. We want to we want to do twice the tricks. You, you flip three times, we're going to flip four times. And this one Japanese kid like flew to the moon and back, um, which was amazing to watch him, him do what he was doing because he was like, Sean White went this high, I'm going to go higher. And so there's something, though, in this text that I never really um, taught on before, and I wasn't really attuned in until I gave a variation of this teaching um, to a church uh, just across um, a couple of highways over from here in East Baltimore called New Harvest. They were having their uh, 26th like anniversary as a church, and they asked me to come and speak. And they were an all-African-American church. So I just want you to know, when I did this sermon the last time, uh, or the variation of it, there was a lot of talking back. I am not anticipating having that level of communication um, I know my wife may try to make up for it, um, which is great, um, but I like the fact that she always keeps me on target, um, and so the rest of you can fill this in. But I have a question for you, and I really think, I, I, and I believe it's a spiritual question. I really do. Um, how stubborn are you? I, I want you to think about that, and I believe we have it for, on a slide for you. But the question is, is, when is it okay to be stubborn? Because let me just be honest. Being stubborn doesn't always work. That's your role, right? If you, that's Ginger's responsibility in my teaching is to add color commentary, all right? So she was inspired by John Madden. Um, so the, the idea is, is that there's a time and place for everything, right? Like we can't always eat chocolate, right? We, like, for some of you, like, you're allergic to chocolate, so there's no time and place for you to eat chocolate. But for somebody like me that loves chocolate, I can't have chocolate for every meal of the day all the time, even though I try to do that successfully every year from Thanksgiving to Christmas, right? Um, and then January comes around, and then it, it shapes all of my pledges for my eating habits for the year. But there are times that stubbornness and being stubborn is vitally important to the church because you and I have got to understand that there are right places and right times for us to put our foot down and say, I know I just heard you say this to me, but no, I'm not going to do it. There were three times in this passage that Albert just read to us that the mentor said to the mentee, stay here. And three times the mentee said to the mentor, I love you. But no, I'm going with you. And Elijah never corrected him. 
Because there was a level of stubbornness that I think had a spiritual attachment to it. And Elijah knew exactly what was happening. And it's very arguable that Elijah may have been even testing his subject here and seeing how badly he really wanted to stick with him, knowing what was about ready to happen. And Elisha's heart was being revealed more and more and more every time Elijah said, stay. And he's like, I love you, but no, I'm not going to stay. I'm going to keep pursuing after you. And so today, I really do want us to think about where we show our stubbornness and when it's truly our responsibility to be as stubborn as we possibly can. Because at the end of the day, the church's testimony stinks. In, this, in our culture today, the, for, for people to say to us or you to tell your friends, oh, I go to church. Oh, what kind of church? Oh, it's a Christian church. Whoa. It's like even worse to use the word Christian right now. And we've talked about this in our intentional living class. It's, we, there's, there's an argument that Christians are no longer viewed as weird. Christians are now dangerous. Our faith to a lot of people is dangerous. It's no longer, oh, those are the weird people that seek to get, get married and stay with the same person all the rest of their life. We are now viewed in a community as those, that mindset is dangerous to my children, that mindset is dangerous to my life. And so there's something that we have to begin to discover, and that's part of the passion and the motivation for this series, is where do we show our stubbornness and where do we then communicate that with one another so that we can truly be the church that was on Jesus' mind when he resurrected from the grave? Like Jesus had an intent. We talked about this the last couple of weeks. And my friend Caleb last week did a phenomenal job on the whiteboard talking about how the church has an intent. And we talk about that intent all the time. Orphans, widows, people in distress, intent. Reality? What are people experiencing in the church? And then the gap in between. And so we've been looking at Ephesians and Paul's passionate letter to them, and we're going to get there in just a moment. So let me go back to 2 Kings chapter 2. There are three primary characters in this passage of Scripture. The first is Elijah. He is one worth following. The second is Elisha. He's the one devoted to following, and then there's the crowd, the ones that are just commenting. Did you catch all of those characters in the story? Every time there was a progression on the path where Elisha and Elijah were headed, there were a group of of prophets that were in turn saying and commentating on, wow, there goes Elijah, and here comes Elisha. Hey, Elisha, do you know that your master is getting ready to be taken from you? Yes, I know. Be quiet over and over and over and over again. And so in this passage of Scripture, I believe that it's very important for us in this room to begin to understand that the relationship that Elijah and Elisha had and the commenting of the crowd is a a canvas for which we need to sit back like we're looking at a painting and saying to it, who am I in this story? Which category do you fall in in this story? Are you, like Elijah, the one worth following? Are you, like Elisha, a stubbornly devoted follower to an excellent leader? Or are you the crowd that's constantly commenting, you know, that church is pretty interesting, Uh, that pastor, you know, whatever, and I really wish he'd wear suit pants and not black jeans, and, you know, I really wish the music was different, you know, I like the old building, but I like historic churches better, 
you know, hey, do you know that that church is kind of new and, you know, it may or may not be here in 10 years? Like, are we a part of the commentating crowd? Are we a part of the ones that are just talking about, well, you know, don't look at the carpet too closely. It needs to be cleaned. You know, are we, you know, what, what is it that we are actually finding ourselves? Are we evaluating our words and our thoughts about these, specifically today in 2 Kings 2? Like, where are we finding ourselves in this story? Because in this story, we find that Elijah and Elisha together and the relationship that they had together was a testimony to us today and was a testimony to the prophets watching back then of what it takes to get through life, period. It was a testimony. What does it take to get through life focused on God? What does it take... Um, as it, what, what does it take for us to get through the challenges that we face? For them, it was a body of water that needed to be parted so they could get to the other side. For us, it might be school systems, crime, um, jobs, economics, e- education, whatever it is. Whatever challenges are in front of us, there is some form of spiritual cloak that we can take off and strike it in a way that it parts it so that we can get through it but we're not going to get through it the way that we're currently on path to try to get through it. Most of us are attacking life in isolation. Most of us, at best, we might be trying to do it with a roommate or a spouse or some somebody possibly. But the church is where we get through things together. It's the only way I believe that we're meant to do this. So here's my question. Who are you called to be? That's obviously the question for today. What is your calling and responsibility right now? Now, it's arguable that my calling should be pretty obvious. Like, I am the pastor of the church. I should be in the Elijah chair. That's what I should be doing. I should be a worthy leader to be following. And for those of you that know me well, I've been sharing some of my grief with you over these last several months. Because it started when, we, when Ginger and I lost her dad, because he was an Elijah-type figure for me. It also started for me when several others of my pastoral mentors that were getting into their late 70s and 80s all started passing, and it has never stared me in the face more that I am very quickly becoming one of the oldest people in the room. That's happening. It's reality. I could deny it, I could try to act like I'm younger than myself, I could do whatever, but yet in reality, there's really only one seat left for me on the bus. I should be, I should be a leader worthy of following. Now, some of you in here, you're in, you, you're, you might have all your mentors, you might be half my age, but you also can be a leader worthy of being followed. You don't have to be the oldest person in the room to be a leader worthy to be following. The church was never set up so there was only one leader worthy to be following. It was supposed to be a group of people, and people in the room were leaders worthy to be followed, and then there were other people in the room that were devoted followers that were stubborn enough to say, I want more time with you. That were stubborn enough to say, I know that the life and circumstances are going the way that they are, but I need more exposure. I want to be better in my faith in you. I want to do more than you. And so in this story, I want to make it very clear to you. There's no space in the church for the crowd. 
There's no space. Now, let me just rephrase that. We can come to church in moments that are designed to have both followers and crowd together. That's, that's obvious. Most Sunday mornings are the way that we do things. We want people that don't believe in Jesus to feel comfortable, even though listening to Christian music with people standing and singing to somebody that's an unbeliever is very weird. Can I just tell you guys that? Like, even the song that we just sang here at the very end, all my life you've been faithful and you've been good, swallow that. Listen to somebody who's coming into this space and a parent was abusive or they grew up in a home where um, they were taught something different, different values, or they've had the city of Baltimore violent towards them. Where was God when I was assaulted on the street? So there's truth in our music that has such a back theological story to it. Even if you go to the writer of the song and you know what happened in their life that inspired them to sing those words, we don't have time every Sunday morning, or should I say, should we take time to sing one song and actually talk about who wrote it and why, so that we understand what we're singing. But to an audience that doesn't believe in Jesus, what we do in this room is very weird. It is. It becomes comfortable to us because we understand it, but it becomes less weird when there's a better balance in the room between who's leading and who's following. But here, Elisha wasn't content with being a forever follower. I want you to understand that. He wasn't content to just be the one that always followed somebody else. He had a fire in his belly to say, I need to learn, I want to learn, I want to grow, I want to be. Matter of fact, I want to do more than you, Pastor Ellis. I want to have a higher impact in the kingdom than anything I've seen. And so when we begin to think about who we're called to be, I believe that you and I should want to be devoted and that our desire is to do more. And I think that's what the church is made up. So now let's go back to Ephesians 3. We've been in Ephesians 3 now for three weeks, and I'll, I'm not going to tell you how many more weeks we're going to be in it because I don't want you to be like, oh my goodness, he's going to milk every drop out of this chapter. So just hang on. We, we spent 72 weeks in the Gospel of Luke. Um, how many weeks can we get out of 10 verses? So in Ephesians 3 verse 20, I want you to hear this. We've read this out loud every week, and in our growth communities, we've actually read it every week for the most part, and... If you, were, if you follow me on social media, which I would encourage you to do, and I'm going to be an honor to have weekly influence in your life, but if you've listened to the things I've asked, I've asked us to pray these verses over each other. So it's very likely that in the last three weeks, some of you have come across these words dozens of times. And so listen to what Paul says to the church in Ephesus in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant and above all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. When I think of Elisha asking Elijah for a double portion, I see Paul already declaring a double portion over his disciples. It is now understood in the church that every generation of disciple making gets a double portion. immeasurable. It could be arguable that it's possible that it is more than a double portion because if we go back and take Jesus's word serious, what did he say about the seeds we sow? Some of them reap 
a harvest of 10, some 50, some 100 fold, right? So it's possible that some of us in this room could do a hundred times more than I do in my generation. Man, now we're talking. But where's been the vision for the church? Like, look at the churches that we've grown up in. Where is the vision for immeasurably more gone? Why has it become such a thing where one person talks, everybody else listens, and then leaves? I believe that Paul had this idea in his head when he said to them, follow me as I follow Christ. That's not arrogant. That's not proud. That's an example. Is where he's like, look, I have seen Jesus. I have testimony of Jesus. I know the scriptures. I've actually been saturating myself in them. And now I, am, I have been commissioned by God to go to all the Gentiles. And I've been commissioned by God to speak to rulers and kings and to Jews, which I think is really interesting in all the places that talks about Paul's calling. The Jews were always last on his list because that wasn't his primary objective. There were plenty of other disciples that had the Jews as a predominant objective. You can just look at Jesus' half-brother James. He took over the church in Jerusalem after Peter had to go into hiding. There were plenty of people focusing on the Jewish people, but Paul had to be insane enough to take it to Gentiles and to kings and rulers when he was just one off with his head phrase away from losing his life on numerous occasions. And so when I started thinking about this relationship with Elijah and Elisha and the intent of the church, it, my passion became, we're not supposed to be in the crowd. We're, we're, we, some of you, need to be worthy leaders. Some of us need to be devoted followers, but not one of us should remain in the crowd. So what happened, what's going on here up to Ephesians chapter 3? Let me give you a quick rundown. Ephesians chapter 1. Reminder, God lavishly loves you. Can I just take a minute? Is there anybody in the room right now that is really struggling feeling loved? I just want you to, to, to identify yourself. Just like, like, no, not like, oh, it's me, but rhetorically, we're having a conversation, you and me, whoever it is. Who doesn't feel loved? When Paul was in a hole in the ground, most likely in his prison, and he was opening his letter to the people he was writing to, he knew that some of them didn't feel loved. And he starts out by saying to them, I want you to understand this. You are not just loved. You are lavishly loved. Have, now this you can respond to. Have any of you ever felt lavishly loved? Now, there's a difference between, oh, thank you for my birthday card, or thank you for my birthday text, but there's also a lavishly loved birthday wish. Do you guys know the difference? It's the, let me explain to you why I love you. Here's gifts. Here's a cake made of flowers that expresses my love for you. There's a difference between just being loved and being lavishly loved. Lavishly loved goes back to our prayer of generosity. Lavishly loved means that somebody put me above their own needs, way above. Like they literally gave everything that they had up for me. 
that's lavishly loved. That's how Paul starts his letter out in chapter 1 to the church that was, was receiving his words as he was writing to them from prison. Like, who thinks about lavishly loving other people from prison? All right? So the second thing in chapter 1, he wants to make it very clear. And we sang two songs about this this morning. Two of our worship songs were on this point of Ephesians chapter 1. And in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, you, want, you know what our Father in heaven has done? He has put you in Jesus Christ like a safe. You are put in there. You are now protected. You are in Jesus Christ, so just live. And then he goes on to say, and let me tell you what he also has done to make sure that you know exactly how much you're loved. The same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead is now in you. And so the same power that could get into Jesus and literally breathe life back to his body is available to you. And I just want to say to us as a church, that was the spirit that was in Elijah. That was the spirit that got into Elisha twice over, and the crowd never got the spirit. The crowd was just watching and commentating, and some of us are like, where's the power in the church? Because too many of us are in the crowd. Too many of us are not in saying, wow, the truth is God has placed me in Jesus Christ. The truth is I have access to the spirit of the most high God and I have no vision for what that really can do for my life. And it's not just for my life. It then becomes, wait a minute, I am now following after God and now the spirit is empowering me to lavishly love and be excessively generous with everything in my life. And, and therefore, I have access to wisdom. I have no idea where it came from. All of these things can come rushing to us if we realize that we're meant to either be an Elijah-type character or an Elisha-type character, but not in the crowd. So you think chapter 1 is great. You get into chapter 2, that's the motivation for the name of our church. The Gallery Church is named after Ephesians chapter 2 because Paul tells them, not only are you lavishly loved, do you realize that you are the pinnacle of his creation? You are his masterpiece. So you and I are God's art in the world on display for the world to see the artist. That's where the name Gallery Church has come from. So we're not just a group of people that all have these differences and diversities and different shades of brown, different intellect, different capacities, different talents. We are a masterpiece. Not just one of you, all of us. That's what he's telling this church. And so many of us feel less than that. And the reason is, is because we are just remaining in the crowd. And when you're in the crowd, you get all the voices. All the voices. But when you allow yourself to step out and, and get out of the crowd, you're only getting the voice of the Father and the mentor that you've aligned your life with. And when you do that, you're, you're giving yourself an increased potential of being able to focus on truth in being able to win victories over all the voices that are out there competing for your attention. And some of those voices want to do nothing but hold you back so they can get to where they're wanting to go. Why do you think Jimmy Johns has made their commercial about a guy who made it to the top? Like, listen, it's in our culture. That's what people are finding when they remain in the crowd. And so once you get past the fact that you're a masterpiece, Paul goes on to say, just in case you don't believe this. He says, women, men, masters, slaves. 
Jews, Gentiles. Like he goes, I mean, I literally imagine him going around the room saying, you're a masterpiece, you're a masterpiece, you're a masterpiece, you're a ma-. and just in case you don't think that you're a masterpiece, like he's, he is telling them this, and there's a reason why he was telling them this, because they may have grown up in a very spiritual world, but there was definitely serious class systems and serious gender issues worse than we face today going on in that time. And Paul's saying, inside of this room, inside of the church, there is not a person in this room that isn't lavishly loved, masterpiece, male, female, no matter what color, what language, all of this, you are exactly what God wanted you to be. And in this room, we're going to treat each other that very same way. That's what he's saying to them. And then he goes on in Ephesians 3, and Paul says to them, I believe in this message of oneness so much, I'm devoted to it so much, that in order for everyone to be included, and in order for everyone to know this truth, I am in prison and that is fine with me. Now, I just want you to measure your, your, your tank for suffering just for a minute. How much are you really willing to suffer? I mean, think about that. Paul so firmly believed in bringing the world together in Jesus Christ that being in prison, being dependent upon people to bring food and drop it into a hole or blankets and drop it into the hole so he could stay warm and fed, being there and seeing diverse people, men and women in particular, and, and the master-slave system that they had where the barriers were coming down and people were treating and loving each other the way that they were supposed to be treating and loving each other, all of those things were coming together, so much so that while he was in that ground, in the, he's writing joyfully to them, this is so much better than I could ever imagine because you guys are coming together in unity and oneness. And I think many times we forget where Paul is and how much he literally was suffering. There's stories in Acts, especially stories in and around um, uh, the city of Ephesus, where there were times that people beat him, drug him out of town, and when he regained consciousness, he'd walk back in town. That's pretty amazing. I actually have a family member that because of their experiences here in Baltimore has a slight story similar, similar of what it feels like for people to physically tell you you're not welcome, but then for you to be able to go back to them and say, but I'm still here for you. Like There's testimonies of that even inside of this space. And so... For you and I, we've got to understand that to be an Elijah or an Elisha type person and not just in the crowd, we've got to up our suffering game. Because we're going to have to do everything we possibly can to convince people that the path that they're on is leading them to lots of pain and destruction. And so we find here in Ephesians 3 that he's rejoicing that the work is getting done and his suffering is working. We're finding that the work of unity in Jesus is for everyone. The church is the way through life for everyone. And then he goes on to say, this is God's intent, the church. We read that in Ephesians 
uh, chapter 3 in verses 10 and 11 that there is no plan B. So how did Paul want to get them through their generation? I believe this, one word together. Something happened in my parents' generation. The motivation was good. I want you to hear me when I say this. Most people don't continue to adapt their decision-making. They make a decision and stick with it even when they begin to see the side effects of it. I want you to hear me. That's not negative. We all do it. And so what we have to realize is is that being a good leader and a good decision-maker is realizing that I'm going to try to make a decision that's at least 75 to 80% correct, but as soon as I realize I'm off by a few percentage points, I'm going to make another decision to adjust. And this is what happened. Somehow in, church, in, in our modern church history, once Bibles and education really started to hit the church, the predominant tool that was taught to individuals is a personal devotion. Somehow the church went from being a group activity, meals, and a lot of activities together where we're, we're teaching and instructing but because of the way that materials, because of the printing press and, and the wealth of America in particular, we were able to come up with so many resources that what ended up happening was, okay, you now have access to so many things. I want you to have a personal quiet time. And so now this is what's now happened in the church. There's no longer Elijah and Elisha relationships because everybody can go and have their own personal quiet in their own personal time with God, and you never have to talk to a brother and sister in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have a lot of people that love Jesus but are socially awkward with their brothers and sisters. We don't know how to learn from each other. We don't know how to talk to each other. We don't know how to love each other. But we know how to say, God, this morning as I wake up, I want my attention to be on you. Let me read for you what Oswald Chambers has said to me. And, 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 and place it into my soul, and now let me go on with my life, but we never talk to our brothers and sisters about our personal quiet times. And what Paul was saying to the early churches is it's not about you doing it by yourself. It's about you having your eyes fixed on Jesus, but also finding worthy leaders that are set an example as you partnering together to make sure everybody knows everybody's lavishly loved by God. Everybody, no matter what they look like. No matter if they're squeegee in your window or if they are the person serving food at your restaurant or if they're the one that went down the street and took the mirror off your car. There are, it doesn't matter who they are or what they're doing. They are lavishly loved by God and it is our responsibility to get our act together so that everybody knows they're loved by God. So we take in all of the things that we can and our suffering then multiplies over into whatever it can in order for others to know who loves them. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 10, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known. I was reading a book recently about a, a, a man's journey through the nonprofit Christian world back to the church. It's a, it, was a, it's a, it was a really interesting read. But he had a man say to him at one point in time when he had given up on the church, and his mentor said to him this, and I think it's powerful. I'm going to put it on the slide for you. I actually want you to read it before I say it. God's not dead. The church is. God's not dead. That actually resonated in this individual's soul so much so that he wanted to 
say the church needed resurrection. Because the church is supposed to be the presence of God in the world today. And when people want to see God, they should be able to look at the church, his art, his masterpiece. And God has never been dead. And the church is struggling. And we, as stewards of the church, we, I think we can really figure this out. And we can do some pretty amazing things. Because the only way we get through is if, you, if we are who we're called to be. That's the only way we're going to get through. I have to be who I'm called to be. You have to be who you're called to be. But we're all not called to be who we're called to be forever. I want you to hear me when I say this. Right now, I am called to be a leader in this church family. Some of you right now need to be devoted followers, but your calling to be a devoted follower of me is short because you need to be leading. You need to grow so much in your faith that you're willing to look at somebody else and confidently say, I promise you, if you follow me, we're going to find Jesus together. But a lot of us are scared to say those things and the, and the truth is, is that means that we're having to step out of the crowd. But we will not regain the testimony of the church if I'm the only one leading. I do want to be a worthy leader. And I want us to be a church that has a house full of worthy leaders so that there can be so many people in Elijah-Elisha relationships so that by the time this church gets to the end of its life, whatever that is, is that there is something special that's happened to Baltimore. So we, let me be clear. You're either a worthy leader, you're either a devoted follower, or you're in the crowd. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you today? The only way through the darkness of this world is if we are devoted followers of men and women who are devoted to the will and the way of Jesus. There's redundancy in my words, but I want them to be seen and heard. And so I want you to reflect on that. I believe that we have a slide that has that on it for you. But you and I need to get through the darkness of this life because in this world we are devoted followers of men and women who are devoted to the will and way of Jesus. So who are you called to be? Let me give you the answer, okay? And it's on the screen for you. The answer to who you're called to be, with eyes fixed on Jesus, you are to be a leader who is following Jesus or you're to be a follower of a leader whose eyes are fixed on Jesus until you become a leader fixed on Jesus. That's it. That's the church. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And a lot of people would, would be joining in to that so much so that I think it's like Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 8. And guys, I just want to tell you, before I'm finally retired in Baltimore or I see Jesus face to face, I don't want just a whiteboard stand to be installed to our stage. I want to make sure we have to install a baptism tank and find a way to have it in here and it's always in here and it's always being used rather than us having to go down every time we use it once or twice a year and, and hose it out and dust it off and clean it up in the storage room, but yet where it's a fixture in here because every Sunday you know somebody's saying, I want to be reborn. I want to be a testimony of the second passing through of water. You know? And so I know we're heading towards that, and we actually have a message on baptism coming up in March. And so let me, let me stop here and just say this. Um, we might be small in number, but God has done a lot more with a lot less. 
I just want to make sure that everything that we're doing is just in line with the will and way of Jesus, and we won't be small long. We won't be small long. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, just let your words rest on us, Would your spirit be very clear? Father, we confess that too many people don't believe in you or have serious doubts in you because they've been around people like us. We confess that we have not always been good image bearers of you. And Father, we are wanting your spirit to guide us, to renew us. Lord, even even tell us names of people we need to go to directly and say, would you please forgive me because I've been a bad example. But Father, would you also give us a boldness to know who we need to talk to in a way that says there's something special about Jesus and I want you to experience him in my life. So Father, help us to live up to the true intent of your church. We want to be your presence and we want to be your truth. Father, I pray that for that those that are hearing my words today, that they would become passionate Elishas on a journey to become Elijahs. And that those that are feeling like they are just in the crowd would have the courage to step out stubbornly. A holy stubbornness to be Elishas. And Lord, I pray that by the time we get to the end of February next year, that there's a whole new crop of Elijahs and a whole new crop of Elishas as a part of our church family. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you guys are watching online or you're in the room, I want to make sure that if you have access to the elements for the Lord's table, we end our gathering with the Lord's table every week because we believe that when the earth, when when Jesus told his disciples to do it often, and when the early church made it a weekly practice, we believe that that's something that we should do. But this isn't just religious ritual. This is us celebrating what is true. It's like the it's, rather than celebrating a birthday um, annually, we celebrate the birth of the church through Jesus Christ every week. It's worth celebrating weekly, and this is a celebration, even though it might feel re- religious because it comes in a little plastic cup. But this is designed for you and I to recall who we are, how we're loved, and how we are to love in two little expressions. And so today I just want to encourage us to receive this as a reminder of our faith and to receive this as the reminder of the amount of suffering we might need to go through in order for somebody else to believe. And so would you go ahead and remove the cracker from the bottom of your cup if you can. We generally say this to one another um, out loud. Would you just, it's on the screen for you, just hold it up towards one another. If you can, you're coordinated enough, you want to break it in your hand as it's broken, but just say, this is his body broken for you. Let's do this in remembrance of him. And then for those of you that are online at home, I'm going to try to do my best to make eye contact with you because I don't want you to feel at alone at home. At home, the presence of the church is vital for where we are, and 
And I'd like for us to remove the juice at the top or the lid so we get to the juice. And I want us to be reminded, and we have the words on the screen as well for you. We've added more to it because it's now on the screen and easier for you to read out loud. But if we could say this to one another as well as truth, say it together. This is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And we join in with declaring the mystery of our faith um, through church tradition, and it's also on the screen for you right now. Let's just say this out loud together. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is come again. So with that, I just want to remind you guys that we did make the adjustment of prayer week. Prayer week is now February 27th through March the 6th. Um, we, We are having some issues with our church app. Um, even the notes that we set aside um, and, and created for today's teaching. If your phone has run an update, it's very likely that you can't access our app or it has kicked you out of the local church. We are, we are working with our provider on this to resolve the issue because all the information for prayer week is going to be in the notes sections of the app. If you do not have access to the notes sections of the app, we are going to be trying to create some opportunities through the website to get things to you, but the easiest way for us to accomplish the task that we are setting out for for our prayer week is going to be able to be able to use our smartphones. We're going to have an in-person prayer in this space every morning from Sunday, February 27th, all the way through Sunday, March the 6th. That's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. We're going to be praying in person in this space if you can join us. We are going to have guided prayer in the app for each day, for morning, noon, and evening. And then every night at 7 p.m., we're going to be in this space for a brief teaching and a practice of what we were just taught. So we will, we will be taught about ways to pray. We will be practicing those. We are looking at creating an online element, but I don't want us to use it as a lazy response to us being together. I only want it to be for those of us that it's a necessity. So we do need to get back into the habit of being together as much as we can. And the practice of prayer is going to be vital for us together. So there will be ways that you can watch online, especially, I know a lot of our parents are trying to stay engaged as best they can. We want to be sensitive to that. But if you can be here, we need to be here. And that's every night um, from uh, March the 6th through, excuse me, from February 27th through March the 6th, but it ends on Sunday morning. There is no Sunday night on March the 6th. It will all end together on that Sunday morning. So, okay, so stand up with me. Let's pray together. Or let's do our benediction together. Um, and, and generally in our practice, we usually extend hands towards one another. I am prayerful by Easter. We can actually touch one another um, again. Uh, that's my desire in a way that's a little bit safer than what some people feel right now but let's at least extend a hand towards one another. And at, because as we go from here today, we have a decision to make. Are we going to stay in the crowd? Are we going to be an Elisha? Or are we going to accept the call to be an Elijah? We have those options. And my prayer is, is that we would all find ourselves either in the shoes of Elijah or in the shoes of Elisha because God wants to do immeasurably more than we are even dreaming about his church. And our city needs the church to start dreaming again. And may God's grace and peace be with you. Thank you, guys. Go Rams.